Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about forgiveness and the difficulty of forgiving yourself and how we can forgive ourselves. A technique for for that and a new idea. I don't think you've heard this before. It certainly was new to me. And I also want to share with you something very special, something new. I've been I've been learning a new book. It's called the Pischei Sharem. Very Kabbalistic book. I don't know how I'm learning it even. It's it's like it's way above my pay grade. And I just learned some Kabbalistic anatomy. And really, even though he doesn't phrase it this way, I'm I'm phrasing it this way, the Kabbalah of breathing. So at the end of this talk, we'll do a little Kabbalistic anatomy and we'll do sort of a guided meditation at the end. Something very special. But first, I want to talk about forgiveness. And forgiveness is something that is, we're not functioning effectively as human beings unless we're forgiving. And we tend to think of forgiveness as something that is a bonus. Like, I don't really have to forgive. And if I do forgive, it's really up to me and all of the rest. And that's kind of a very selfish, shallow way of understanding forgiveness. Because you will be forgiven for what you've done in your life to the extent that you forgive other people. There is a direct correlation. You know, a lot of times we just think that if I don't judge another person, for instance, this is a related idea, but very much on the same topic. If I don't judge another person, I'm being a nice guy. But people don't realize that they're saving their own lives when they don't judge other people. And, you know, I'm not talking about the criminal justice system right now. If someone is a thief or a murderer, you you have to judge them. That's why we have a court system. That's one of the seven universal commandments on all of humanity, by the way. What I'm talking about is the the ins and outs of everyday life and our interactions with our family and, and friends and neighbors and things like that. I'm talking about those type of interactions and that level of forgiveness and that level of judging. So let's talk about judging for a moment. Believe it or not, the Baal Shem Tov brings down an amazing klal, an amazing spiritual foundation about our lives, which is that God will show us a situation that's different from the one that we've been in in our own lives, but actually is the same spiritual idea. And he looks to us to actually judge ourselves. So this is what he does. He shows us this situation, which is just different enough that we don't recognize ourselves in what we're viewing. And then waits for us to pass judgment on these other people. And then God just says, okay, very good. You just judged yourself. Can you imagine? In other words, you talk about stacking the jury. Wouldn't you love to have your best friend's secretly on the jury so that they can exonerate you? Wouldn't that be great? Or wouldn't it be great to to have a secret deal with the judge? Well, what about 
the culmination of all those things. What if you are the judge of yourself? You would think that that would be the best thing in the world, except there's a twist. You are the judge of yourself, except God gives you a situation where you don't know that you're judging yourself, <laughs> but you are judging yourself. Isn't that interesting? That, that, that would be, in a way, the ultimate justice, because you get to pass judgment on yourself, but it can't be corrupt. At the same time, the system is not corrupt. What's the check and balance to guard against its corruption? Because you don't know you're judging yourself at the time. So it's a real measure of who you are. So in other words, if you judge other people favorably, it's not just that you're being a nice person. You're actually saving your own life when you judge other people favorably because you're judging yourself. I'll tell you one more thing just to make it easier. It says in Pirkei Avos that you shouldn't judge another person, basically. We say don't judge another person until you're standing in their shoes. And we say also that God is the one true judge. So how do these two ideas fit together? Not to judge another person, and also that God is the one true judge. And the reason why you're not supposed to judge another person is not, or be judgmental about another person, is not because you're being a generous person, but because you don't have all of the information. That's why it says that God is the one true judge. God is the only one who has all of the information available about what went down, so to speak, in terms of what happened. He knows the person's thoughts. He knows all the person's circumstances leading up to that event. And that crucial information is lacking from the, from the average person who looks at that person. So why does it say don't judge another person? Because you will be wrong. <laughs> you will be wrong because you are lacking crucial information that only God has. But not only that, not only will you be wrong, but if you judge them favorably, you're actually saving your own life too. So, so this dynamic is, is very related to forgiveness as well. Because when you are a forgiving person, God also forgives you. There's this sort of ecosystem, this sort of divine flow, which is, which is related in both situations. So for anyone to think that forgiveness is mine to give, and, you know, I don't want to give it, whatever, it's... The person is being very, very foolish. And it's one of the hardest things to do, by the way. I don't want to, um, I don't want to underestimate the difficulty of it. It's extremely hard to do. And I've been sort of surprised slash a little bit shocked, honestly. Over the years, I, people who I've been learning with over the years, you know, people who I have great admiration for and respect for and who I find are very spiritual people in general and very dedicated and good people in general, periodically 
semi-regularly over the years, they'll confine something, confide something in me about a situation that they're in where they simply can't forgive another person. And I'm always surprised by that because, because it seems like it seems like it shouldn't be as hard as it is. And yet, and yet I find from people who, like I said, I have great respect for, that they find it exceedingly hard to do. And I think in this category is forgiving God and also forgiving ourselves. That some people will forgive other people, they'll forgive God, but when it comes to forgiving yourself, forget it. You know what I mean? And they're not even aware that they're not forgiving themselves. That, that's even more intense. In other words, the person's emotional, mental, psycho-spiritual equilibrium is so out of whack. And they don't know why. And it's because they aren't forgiving themselves. So it's, it's a little bit surprising, but to be forgiven is one thing, but to actually allow yourself to be forgiven is a whole separate talent. Yeah. And people just think that, okay, he apologized, but somehow it just stops in our mind and it doesn't go into our heart. And there are all these blockages stopping it from entering into our heart. Why? So, so, so one reason is because we're too busy still being angry at the person who's apologizing. And that's blocking the forgiveness from actually entering into our heart. And another thing that's blocking it is that we don't forgive ourselves for having gotten into the relationship with that person to begin with. And so that creates a barrier around our heart. So being able to process forgiveness allow forgiveness is is a whole separate art in itself. So a way to get into all these discussions in a little bit more detail is to discuss Yosef and his brothers. Now you have to understand that the brothers their lives have been absolutely turned upside down in the in the most tormented way. I mean they're now not only on the verge of completely pulling apart their family, but they believe that they've done an act right now in losing Benjamin, Benjamin from separating him from Yaakov, that they've actually killed their father. Not only that, but they've also kind of imploded, like just self-destructed the entire Jewish mission in the world. So, I mean, the, the epicness of just the person-to-person familial kind of um, relationships, which have absolutely been destroyed through what Yosef has put them through, or what they think, you know, they think that it's all been destroyed. And then the, the spiritual consequences that the entire Jewish mission has completely blown apart and has been destroyed, that's been established by Abraham and Yitzchak and, and their father up until this moment. So it's very hard to, to fully grasp where the brothers' minds are at this moment before Yosef reveals himself and says, Ani Yosef, and suddenly, with two words, with two words, everything makes sense to them. 
I mean, try to just understand that the torment, the spiritual, mental, emotional torment that they've gone through disappears with two words. Ani Yosef. All of a sudden, where there's the worst confusion and the worst pain, there's utter crystal clear clarity. And the Chofetz Chaim says something really amazing. He says that at the end of our lives, at the end of 120, we're going to go up to Shemayim, we're going to go up to heaven, and God is going to say two words, Ani Hashem. And with those two words, all of the questions that we have about our life, all of the questions that we have about history, will be suddenly crystal clear when God says, Ani Hashem. Every question, every question, total clarity. So, so here's the question. They famously say that what Yosef was doing was bringing the brothers to this place of tshuva, total tshuva. And remember, the Rambam says that the there are five levels to tshuva, and the fifth level, the highest level of tshuva, the highest level of repairing, you know, past past mistakes, past wrongs, is you're put into the same situation, and this time you do the right thing. If, if a person can do that, they've reached the highest level of tshuva. So what Yosef was doing was orchestrating a situation where one of their brothers is kidnapped like Yosef himself had been kidnapped. And whereas the other brothers didn't save him the first time, now they have a chance to save Benjamin. And in doing so, they'll do the ultimate repair in terms of their past actions. And they do that. They, 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 they pass this with flying colors. Okay. Now here's my question. After that happens... It says that Yosef, you know, they, 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 they had this tearful reunion and they're all hugging, they're all crying. And then Yosef gives them presents. He gives the brothers clothes. And then it says he gives Binyamin clothes. I think he gave him more clothes and 300 pieces of silver but not to the other brothers. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? First of all, clothes is one of the things that got them all into this mess to begin with. When, when Yosef was given the coat of many colors, right? And that aroused jealousy. Now all of a sudden, they're all seemingly friends again. And Yosef seems to be intentionally provoking, intentionally pressing this, this button again, giving Benjamin these extra clothes and this small fortune of money on top of it, but not the other brothers. So the question is, since, since everything Yosef was doing was with extreme, extreme precision, and he knew exactly what he wanted to accomplish, with each of his twists and turns, what did he have in mind? 
So maybe you could say, well, he just had a lapse. Binyamin was his full brother, and he just wanted to give him a present, and he wasn't conscious of, of the implications of what he was doing or the potential downsides of it. But I think all of us would reject that immediately. You know, we're talking about Yosef Atzadik right now, right? Couldn't be, couldn't be, couldn't be. So I heard a good answer. And, and you can say the following. Well, maybe, 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 maybe the complete tshuva hadn't been done yet. In other words, in terms of rescuing the brother, maybe on the level of actions, the brothers had done complete tshuva on the level of actions. But what about on the level of emotion? What about on the level of jealousy? Had they done complete tshuva with their emotions? And this was an opportunity for them to do that. To see one brother favored above the other brothers. And to be able to say, it's okay. It's okay. We all have different lots in life. We all have different things that we need to accomplish in life. And we all have different needs in life. And, you know... I heard someone say one time, sort of like one of these uh, tools with dealing with jealousy. Someone had, I don't know, acquired a big house, say, or something like this. So they say, okay, well, you, you, you want that guy's house. Okay, very good. But you know, if you have his house, you know what comes with it. His wife and his mortgage and his children and his relatives and all of his all of his business complications. You get that too, you know, right? You know that, right? So so we make this like big mistake where we look at another person's blessing and we zero in on the one thing that we want, but we don't realize that when God bestows blessings on someone, it's all a package deal. In other words, Whatever that extra shiny thing that they're getting is interconnected with everything else that they're getting and that they need all of those things in order to accomplish what they need to accomplish. So, so that's what it is. That's what it is. Someone has a little bit, a little bit more than you or someone has something that you've been praying for for many, many years and you don't have yet. It could be. But they need that thing in order to do what they were put into this world for. So for you, it looks like a luxury. But for them, it's a necessity. You know? Can you imagine someone comes up to you and says, Wow, I love your glasses. Those frames are so great. And they take your glasses (laughs) because they see it as a stylish item. And meanwhile, you can't function because you need your glasses to see. But for them, it's sort of like, wow, those frames are so cool. They would go great with my jacket, right? Meanwhile, you're falling on your face and you can't get anything done because you can't see. For you, it's a luxury. For them, it's a necessity. So you say a house like that is a necessity? Yeah, yes. A car like that is a necessity? Absolutely can be. Okay. But I want to go deeper.
I want to go deeper because the brothers passed that test. There's no, you don't see any outcry. Hey, what's he getting more than me? Not, there isn't a peep out of any of the brothers. And it seems like they've come to a great place. And that's the end of the story. But the reason why I'm bringing all of this up is because I continue to be fascinated about the real end to this story, in my opinion. And the real end of this story is often not discussed because it seems to be wrapped up with a beautiful little bow in Parsha's Vayigash, and that's the end of the story. Except, you know, just the divine wisdom of how God allotted all of the different verses of the Torah. The real end to this story is at the end of next week's Parsha, at the end of Parsha's Vayechi, which is after Yaakov Avinu passes away, after he's Nifter, okay? He's buried in Mor Samach Pela. Remember, the Zohar says that's the entrance to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are buried, and all the previous patriarchs and matriarchs are buried, right? So, so Yaakov gets buried there by the brothers, and then when we re- they return back to Egypt, you have the following little incident, which is the brothers are concerned. They see that Yosef isn't acting toward them in the way that he had in the past. And they make this calculation in their brains, which is that he never forgave us. And one of the one of the rabbinic sources, which is absolutely amazing, is that when they were returning home after burying Yaakov, they saw Yosef staring into the pit where they had thrown him, where the brothers had thrown him initially. And they thought, look at this, he's never forgotten. And it says, but really what Yosef was doing is there's a special blessing if you were saved from death. There's a special blessing that you make. And he was saying this special blessing by the pit. Can you imagine? Meanwhile, he's thanking God for being saved, and the other brothers are thinking he never forgave us. Isn't that interesting? I heard that this trip from a Eula Boys School here in Los Angeles, they, they took a trip to, to Poland and visited the farm, the grave sites of the tzaddikim, many of the tzaddikim, and also the concentration camps. And there were several kids on the trip who said the blessing, if your life was saved or if a relative of yours life was saved at a certain spot there's a blessing that you say to thank god for for this salvation and you're ready for this in the concentration camp at auschwitz these were grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the survivors they said it in the spot you know what spot where where the, the pit of yosef so to speak was they know the spot where joseph mengele yamach shamo his name should be erased where he would make the selection, who would live and who would die. They know the spot where that was. These boys in high school went to that spot and they said the blessing. Can you imagine? 
the people who came back from the trip and they saw a lot of things on this trip and went to a lot of places. Many people said that was absolutely the highlight of the whole trip. So Yosef is looking into the pit and thanking God for being saved and the brothers are thinking he's never forgiven us. And by the way, I think that this is a very good example of how life is a Rorschach test. If, if you're familiar with the psychological Rorschach tests, so that those are the ink blots that a psychologist will, will show you. And they're, they're, they're no particular design. They're just kind of random ink blotches. And then they say, well, what do you, what do you see? What do you, what do you see in this? And how you feel inside will be reflected and expressed in the image that you see. And my, my father told me the history of it, which I, I thought was very interesting. There was a Dr. Rorschach, and in the sanitariums in Europe back in the day, he would walk with patients, and he would talk with them, and there would be clouds in the sky, and he would ask them, what does that cloud look like to you? And he noticed that how they were feeling was reflected in what shape they thought the cloud looked like, right? So if someone said, oh, it looks like a mother um, holding her baby, like, okay, that's reflective of a, a certain sense of calm and well-being, or it looks like a dragon with a knife, <laughs> right? A bloody knife. Well, that's reflective of a different state of mind, right? And so he was able to get them to express their emotions and reveal their emotions in such an effective way that he institutionalized the clouds into these ink blots, and that's the origin of the Rorschach test. So I'd like to extend that and, and tell you that, that life itself is a Rorschach test. And what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example from my own life. Many times I'd do my writing in, say, a coffee shop, like a Starbucks or something like this. And, you know, I'll just be sitting, writing and whatever. And maybe there's someone sitting across from me, maybe a few tables over, and I see they're looking in my direction and laughing. Now, if I feel bad about myself, there's no mystery. That person is laughing at me, right? There's no question. Of course they're laughing at me. They're looking at me and they're laughing. That's me projecting my own insecurity onto the world. Do you understand? If I feel good about myself and I see them laughing, you know what I think? I think, oh, they must have thought of something funny. I wonder I wonder what, the, or, or they, they must have just saw something on their phone that made them laugh. If I feel good about myself, then that's not about me. That's just, they're just laughing because they're in a good mood. So life is a raw shock test. How you feel about yourself is how you view the world. There is a one-to-one -one correspondence. Okay? So if you think everybody's against you, it might be because you are against you. <laughs> And you might be against you because you haven't forgiven you.
So we're going to get to that in a moment. We're, we're building to it, okay? So is there a better example of life as a Rorschach test than Yosef looking down into the pit and saying the brocha to God for saving his life and the brothers looking at Yosef looking into the pit and, and thinking that he never forgave us? Okay, so now let's go back into the Chumash. That's, that's a Medrash. Okay, now let's go back into the written text. After they bury Yaakov Avinu, and again, this is one partial later after the story seemingly ends, like very nicely. We've got this real end to this story, as far as I'm concerned, where they've buried their father, and then the brothers are feeling like, now Yosef is going to get us. Now, he's, now he wants to kill us. Now he's going to get revenge on us. And so according to every source, they fabricate a message from their father. And they say that our father Yaakov has this message for you, this last message for you, which is please forgive your brother for the spiteful thing that they did to you. And when Yosef hears this, probably he knew very well that it was a forgery, that his father had never sent that message, which he hadn't, by the way. It says Yosef starts crying. And in my opinion, Yosef starts crying because he realizes the brothers don't realize 17 years after their reunion, 17 years later, the brothers still don't realize that Yosef forgave them. And Yosef starts crying. And then the brothers go even further. Not only have they delivered this message, but then they throw themselves down and they say, we're ready to be your slaves. So on a deep level, I think the brothers never forgave themselves. So what was blocking the forgiveness? Well, maybe they were still angry at Yosef. And there's even opinion, an opinion, the Or Chaim says that the brothers wanted Yosef to punish them more. That they f- didn't, they didn't feel forgiven because they hadn't endured a punishment. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? If only he had punished us. If only he would punish us. And... And it goes even deeper than that, because many sources say that the reason why we became slaves in Egypt, and even the exile up until today, today, is all a result that the brothers never fully came together, and that this this selling of Yosef happened to begin with. And the brothers felt that if he had punished us, we could have fully expiated our, our wrongdoing, And then it would have solved the problem, the ripple effect throughout history. We would have been able to get it all over with. So on some level, they were, they were, they were thinking that because Yosef was so high, because he was so good, because he was so forgiving, that somehow the entire hate of what they had done, the entire wrongdoing of what they had done, wasn't fully kind of like processed. That was... That was their thinking on some level, according to the Yor HaChayim. 
But let's talk about us, because the truth is, is that everything that I've been telling you up until now has only been because I wanted to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Because I think that all of us are in this situation in one level or another. Okay, none of us sold our brothers, right? It says in the Talmud that no person leaves this world having accomplished half of what they wanted to do. I'm going to say that again. No person leaves this world having accomplished half of what they wanted to do. That means if there are certain things that you wanted to do and accomplish in this life and weren't able to do that, you know what? Congratulations. Join the other 7 billion people alive. <laughs> it's a very unexclusive club. <laughs> Everybody is in it. There isn't a person in the world who... You say, well, that person accomplished so much. And then you make this sort of like subtle, incorrect math in your mind. Since he's accomplished so much and so much more than me, surely he accomplished everything he had to do. Incorrect. Even that person wanted to do twice the amount and wasn't able to do it. Look at Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They want to colonize Mars. Do you think in the next five years they're going to colonize Mars? I assure you that they aren't. <laughs> and they're going to think to themselves, yeah, you know, I built a business. <laughs> But did I colonize Mars? You know, because every person's their own world. And and while for us that sounds like an outlandish thought, for them there can't be anything realer because they're building spaceships and are going into space. For them this is a very practical thing. It's not like crazy. They're working on this. They want this. So just to give you, an, that's, a, that's an extreme example, but it's a real example. So what about the rest of us? So I want to give you a tool, and, and I'll make it super personal in a moment, just to tell you really what I mean by this. And, and I believe this. I really do. I really, really do. And again, this is, this is under the category of how do I go about, how do I go about forgiving myself? Because I want to, to accomplish X in life. And all I was able to do was Y. And how can I live with myself for that? Okay. So, so I've been, I, I collected just to give you the, the personal take on this, just so we can talk about something concrete, because I, I don't want to be too abstract here. I want to, it is such an important point that I, I, I want to use something real to, to illustrate it, okay? So I've, I've written a number of pieces, you know, shorter pieces, and my hope is that they're inspiring and things like that, that they're very easy to read and communicate a, a deep idea. And, and I've collected them, collected them together into this manuscript. And now I, I've never written a book before. I'm trying to get it out there. I'm, you know, kind of stumbling along, trying to figure out how to, how to go about that. 
And I have to be realistic that it could be that I'll end up self-publishing this and, and really that a very small number of people, relatively speaking, will end up ever seeing it. And that most people not only never will read it, but they'll never even know it exists. And I think that that's realistic. May happen, may not happen, but it's realistic. So I wanted to accomplish X. And what I did was Y. Very much not X in this example. So you say, well, you know, I'm just going to beat myself up because I never became whatever X represents, right? Never got it to that level. And that's my own failing, my own whatever, lack of fill in the blank. But I don't think that's really accurate. And let me tell you why. And I, I want you all to think of what your X, your ideal is, and what your Y, your falling short of what your best case scenario is, okay? So just while I speak out my, 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 my particular case, think about your own version of this, please. And, and here's the point. What, what is my hope from this project, from this book, say? What is my hope? That that people will see it, read it, and that they'll understand God better, that they'll understand their lives better, that they'll love God more, that they'll love themselves more. That, that, that's, that's my goal. That is my goal. And so the effort that I put in writing in this, there was a certain amount of light, there was a certain amount of energy that came out of my soul when I wrote these pieces. And God can do with that light the same thing as if it's in bookstores everywhere. God can take that light that I put into the world in writing this. And God can make someone go, oh, let's see, what does it mean to be Jewish? And what comes up on Google? Chabad.com. Org. Oh, and I press Chabad.org, the person does. And and then they start reading stuff that totally turns them on, and then they show up at a Chabad, and they go to some someone's house on a Friday night. And, and how did that happen? Why did it? Because God took that light that, that came from my trying to do this. In other words, they never have to pick up the book. They can get that inspiration just from the light. Because God can do what I have in mind is X, which is the book in various stores, right? And all I got was the Y. But God can do the X with the Y. <laughs> God doesn't need the X. God has the Y. I did what I did. Do you understand? I did what I did. It's God running the world anyway. Why should they ever see the book? Let's say the book was available and there it is at Hudson News. But that doesn't mean they were ever going to buy it, right? If they ever buy it, that's also God. 
In every instance, it's only God. Do you understand? Which means in every instance, all you have to do is try. If you are trying, then that's real. And we have to get past all the superficiality of all the quote-unquote material kind of versions of everything. Because even though that's, that seems real to our eyes, the realest thing is the light that comes out of your soul. And you can produce that. And no one can stop you from producing that. And you don't need some kind of book deal or a book agent or whatever it is. You don't need any of that to produce that light. And that effort and that love. You just have to be real. You have to say, you know what? The only thing that exists in this world is God. And what am I here for if not to shine his light? What am I here for? What, what is this world for? If not to make it a more beautiful, harmonious place. So how can I do it? Well, God himself told me how to do it. Like I always like to quote Rabbi Matisyahu Solomon who said he and his wife bought a blender and it came with a 32-page set of instructions. And his wife said, if a blender comes with a 32-page set of instructions, is it possible the world doesn't come with a set of instructions? And that's the Torah. Right? Would God build a magnificent house and put you in the house and not tell you where any of the light switches were so that you would stumble around in the darkness in this mansion, like falling and hitting yourself against various hard surfaces? Is it possible? Is it possible that God would build a house and not tell you where the lights are? Those are the mitzvot. Those are the do this, don't do that's. Those are the lights. Okay. So with that in mind, I, I promised you that we would do a, a, a Kabbalistic meditation. Okay. So this is, we'll do a little, let me give you a little overview now. We'll take the lessons that we just learned and let's uh, meditate over them. But before we do, I want to, give you kind of like a, a little overview, okay? A little overview of the human body. And this is not meant to be comprehensive at all, but there's some real yesodos, as they say, real foundations in what I'm about to tell you. And it's a very simple meditation. You can do it on your own as well. You'll hear, okay? So if you're driving, don't close your eyes, please. <laughs> I, I heard an interview with a woman, God bless her soul. And, you know, she was, she was not in the best way mentally, unfortunately. But she said she experienced this very spiritual moment. She was on the freeway in Los Angeles. And she saw the car ahead of her. Like, you know, she's probably doing 60 miles an hour. And there was a bumper sticker on the car ahead of her that said, let go let God. And so she understood that to mean to let go of the steering wheel. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> that is, that's not what the bumper sticker meant. 
<laughs> okay, so let's just do an overview and then I'll get into the specifics of this meditation. But we'll do a little Kabbalistic anatomy, okay? Basically, you have, and, and you can picture this as three circles, one above the other, okay? So kind of like a ladder. Three circles, one above the other. Uh, uh, one above the other. So the top circle, that's your brain. That's your mind. The circle below that, that's your heart. And the circle below that is your liver. Believe it or not, you know, we, we don't, in, in, in the Kabbalistic understanding of the energy centers of your body, the liver is a major, major place. And I'm going to explain it in a moment. So again, you have the top circle is your mind, the middle circle is your heart, and the lower circle is your, your liver, your coven. And believe it or not, the, the letters, the first letters of those things, mochin, lev, and kaved spell melech, king. So because someone who is able to be in control of themselves is, is a ruler, is a king. That, that's not by, by accident. That's part of the holiness of the Hebrew language of it, that, that, that it spells that, okay? So let's get a little Freudian right now, just so you know how the three interrelate. It's a little bit of an overview. So from the Jewish perspective, you are your heart, basically. That's you. And then on either side, you have your Yetzer Tov and your Yetzer Hara, your positive inclination and your negative inclination. And they're both sort of competing to get you to follow it. Okay? So in the, in the chart that I just um, spelled out for you, your mind would be your Yetzer Tov, your positive inclination. Your heart would be you, so to speak. And your kaved, your liver, would be your Yetzirah. Or, to now put it in a Freudian context, your mind would be your superego, like your conscience. Your heart would be your ego, that would just be you, you're just your sense of self. And the kaved, the liver, would be like the id. That sort of like, place where just it's raw, wild emotion and desire, basically. So, so now I think we have a very kind of like nice little chart there. Now I'm going to add a new element, and this will get us into the meditation itself. So if you want to close your eyes now, and you can take a Deep breath through your nose, hold it in your lungs for a few seconds, and then you can breathe it out. Let's take a few deep breaths. And we're going to talk about the Kabbalah of breathing and how this can and how this can bring us to Yeshuv Hadas, which is a settled mind. And what I'm telling you right now is from the Pischei Sharem, from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who is one of our greatest Kabbalists. And now we're going to add a new element. 
Next to the heart are the lungs. And so the air, breathe in, hold the breath and you can breathe out and continue to breathe as I tell you this. Next to the heart is the lungs and the air is coming into the lungs. It's going into the heart and it's going down into the liver. And now the liver is that sort of wild place of emotion. It's the headquarters of what we call the nephish behemus, the animal instinct, the nephish, that which is sort of like controlling all of our bodily functions. That's the, that's the headquarters. That's the, the, the furnace, so to speak, which is fueling all the body's activities. That's the liver. And the liver is we have four elements and the element of fire is located where the liver is. Not only that, but the liver in terms of the midos is the place where gavura is. And gavura, you know, means judgment or din. Everyone should continue to, to breathe, to breathe in the air, Hold it for a bit, then you can exhale through your nose or through your mouth, whatever is comfortable. And our minds are getting settled. And now, now we're going to find out the key piece of information. From our lungs, our lungs are where chesed and where the element of mayim, water, are located. And we're breathing in the chesed and it's going into our hearts and it's going down to our liver and that chesed is sweetening the gavura. All that judgment, that roiling, bubbling, fiery judgment, the chesed is sweetening the din. And we're breathing in, and in our lungs, the mayim, the water that we're breathing in, it's going through our heart, and that water is coming down, and it's putting out all the fires in our liver. So we're breathing in chesed, and it's sweetening all the gavora, all the judgments. And we're breathing in water and it's putting out all the fires. All of those unsettled aspects in our life. It's allowing us to be calm. It's giving us a settled mind. And from that settled mind, we know that God fills the entire world and that God fills each of us too. And that each one of us has a soul, and that soul is a piece of God, that God, from his love, is putting into us a piece of himself. His light is what's animating us. And with that light, we're opening up our hearts now.
Because whatever barriers we have around our hearts, when we're shining that inner light on it, all the barriers are melting away. Our heart is opening. And we're forgiving ourselves because we understand that all we can do in this lifetime, all we can do is try. That the results are in the hands of God and that he doesn't look to us for the results, but he does look to us for the effort. We must put in the effort. We have to put in the effort because that's why we're here. And we put the effort out into the world. And once we do, that light fills the entire world and God can do whatever he wants with that light and accomplish the most exalted goals, the redemption itself with all of the light we're putting out. And we can feel accomplished and we can judge ourselves and forgive ourselves correctly and properly and righteously because we know that the emis, the truth of our life, is the effort that we're putting in and the light we're putting out. And we're putting out effort and light every single day. And there's no greater success than that, which means all of us are successes. And we're breathing in the light and we're using that light now to continue to keep our hearts open. We don't ever want our hearts to close. And we don't ever want to stop pumping light in the world and making the world a more loving, beautiful place. And we'll take one more breath and another one. We can open up our eyes now. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.